before I saw this movie and I heard that this was, you know, the the fish fucking movie, I was like <laughs> having these weird images of like them flopping around on a bed. Literally, because they're fishies. Um, oh, man. But the fact, obviously, that Del Toro knows exactly what he's doing, uh, and I think he's done this before. Um, <laughs> Fish fucking? Yeah. <laughs> um, Him personally, yes. or he's watched it? Oh, no, he's he's done it before. That's a he looks new... like you a... don't make a movie like this and without some kind of personal experience. This is a new subcategory <laughs> oh, yeah. that you can find on Pornhub? Actually, oh. honestly, you'd be surprised <laughs> when this movie introduced a lonely soul frequently masturbating on top of a movie theater. I'm not trying to give too much of a window into my <laughs> life, but I was kind of scared that somebody was wiretapping my bedroom. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the new Guillermo del Toro film, which is The Shape of Water. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome into episode 140 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Nick Cheney. What you doing there? That's my fish face. Really, again, we've had many instances of this, but... Not translating over oh, audio. Shit, no. I'm sorry. Hold on, let me do it again. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. I wouldn't put it past you, so yeah. Toussaint Egan, again, not Hey, how today. you doing, Toussaint? Oh, yeah. he's not here. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, wow. Which, he's been he's been busy with uh, school recently, so, so that makes he sense. Has. And he will be back with us next week, so oh, something shit. to look forward to for the listeners. Okay, I'll have to clear off his chair. I was going to say, and for me <laughs> and you, but yeah. yeah. Um, but we do have a guest this week uh, joining us again. You were just here uh, a few weeks ago, but That's Sam true. Shamara. Hello again. Gracing us with her Hello. presence again. Yeah, we just talked about Batman Returns not too mm-hmm. long ago. Oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. I was thinking Beetlejuice, but then I forgot that. No, no. That was the one prior to Yeah, right, she's, right. she's been here quite frequently well, lately. I was going to say, at least like once a month at this I point. I know, it's it been like... awesome. I like it. You need I, a I, life. I, if, yeah. <laughs> We, like, I hope you're not coming here because you feel bad for us. You're like, oh, it's just these three. I hope you poor are. Whatever, guys just... whatever gets you coming here, that's <laughs> that's fine with me. Yeah, because when it's just me and Nick talking, it gets really. It gets heated in a sexual way, and I feel like that distracts us from you know. Like, I the need movie to be and... here to break up the tension. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I actually enjoy doing this. So well, breaking you. up sexual tension. Yeah. yeah both. Who doesn't? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, as always, thank you for joining us yes, today, thank you. Sam. So today uh, we are talking about Guillermo del Toro's new film, The Shape of Water, oh, mm-hmm. which is, this is fun for me at least, because Sam was on 
when we talked about Crimson Peak. I was. Del Toro's yeah. last two. I know. Oh so goodness. like we've made we've made it quite a ways here we now really that have. we're talking mm-hmm. about another film from the same director. Well, we've done that before, haven't we? I'm not sure. Let's think about this for now, one second. I know we second. did. We've done both the Kingsman films. Yeah. Those are both Matthew We've Vaughan. done franchise films, but... We've done... We've... Hold on here. Two Fast and the Furious films. Right, right. Two Star Wars. But there I'm, are three Star Wars films. Yeah, but I want to see if we've done from just two... You know, one director without doing a classic. So, like, when we do Phantom Thread, that won't count that we did There Will Be Blood or something. Or Magnolia. <laughs> um... But, yeah, I guess this would be the first time I feel like we've returned uh, just to an auteur and not to... Uh... Well, to a director doing a different, not doing a repeat of right, the right, same right. series. Yeah. Not part of a series or anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, congratulations, I th- Sam. Yeah. Ooh, I feel like I made it. Now, yeah. we have... Well, I guess we didn't do a new film of his. We've done quite a bit of Christopher Nolan's Yeah, work. but that's the same thing as Scorsese we've done and um, what you call it. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Wes? Have, no. we, have we done a Wes We've never Anderson done an episode? episode. We've talked about him. Uh, like Probably on our best of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll sh- I'm sure we'll do Isle of Dogs. Yeah. And I other. was going to say that preview looked very interesting, and yes. I think it would be a very interesting one if. I'm with you. I wouldn't mind like kind of putting myself oh. in, but okay, I was I'd with you at like... the beginning of that thought. Oh. Okay, but it's now fine. Whatever, it's... I'll just it's it's fine. We'll no, cut please. ties after this episode. Yeah, don't pay. T- he's a very mean person. <laughs> don't pay attention to him. No, Nick is like a huge Wes Anderson fan, and I actually didn't used to be, but I've like come over to the dark side on Wes okay. Anderson. Also, I just want to point out because I'm just remembering this right now, but we have not continued our Paul Verhoeven journey. Um, we've done quite a few Paul Verhoeven. We've films. done RoboCop, mm-hmm. Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. and I think that's it actually. Oh, L. No, L. Mm-hmm. So we've done three. That's, okay, that's I forgot pretty about good. L. Yeah, that is good. It's pretty good. But well, we need to do them all. So, <laughs> uh, Tatsusan, and uh, we'll get together for Showgirls. No, we've we're, we're doing one per year so far, which I think is a pretty good okay. pace. All right. Mm-hmm. So we still have to do a 2018 one. Yeah. All right. There cool. we go. Sure. <laughs> okay. So, getting back to Guillermo del Toro, and I'm just butchering his name every time because That's okay. I suck at this. Uh, so, we did talk yeah. about Crimson Peak, but he we has did. done other major films mm-hmm. and other films that weren't major but became major after people saw them, like Pan's Labyrinth. But he has also mm-hmm. done Hellboy and Pacific Rim, so he's mm. done quite yeah. a bit of, of work out there. But I forgot that he did Hellboy. Yeah. Oh, he did uh, the Golden Army too, the second one. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I totally forgot about it's that. It's pretty much one of his, if not his, passion project because um, he pretty much got not canned, but he was supposed to do a trilogy and they did not finish it. And now they're doing a new Hellboy without his involvement at well, all. Well, he was supposed to make a third film and then he even wrote out a tweet about it or something right. and then immediately well, they like, were gonna, retracted it. From what so. I understand. Him and Ron Perlman met with the studios to basically discuss what they wanted to do with the future of Hellboy. And then I guess the reaction to that meeting was like, yeah, we want more Hellboy. Okay, call David Harbour and uh, whoever can direct it can direct it. So, hmm. yeah, they they clearly did not want another Del Toro movie, which is too bad. But uh, They're lost. I agree. I'm okay with that, though. I'd rather him do something else. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're talking, you're preaching to the choir here as far as what you want to see Del Toro do. And um, also, he 
not bailed, but he uh, divorced himself from the Pacific Rim sequel too. Which because he was looks supposed like to do that. that. Was a great decision. Yeah, no, I mean it looks like an awful. I mean I didn't like the first one, but the second one looks Ooh. really bad. Mm-hmm. And he was originally going to do his own sequel, pick, pick but it seemed like that. he actually quit that. Like mm. they were not gonna. Well, from what I've read, he pretty much it was either going to be Shape of Water or that, and he really had wanted to do this, so he's like, yeah. I'm just gonna yeah. Take this and leave Pacific Rim with you. That's right. And it's bad when Charlie Hunnam is like, yeah, that's yeah. you're in bad shape. True. Um, but no. John Boyega is going to be in it. Who and he's for now an upcoming star, but me? maybe not after. At any rate, <laughs> the Shape of Water revolves around a top secret research facility. By the way, I just figured out. A director we have done multiple new releases from. That's not a franchise. Mm-hmm. Are you ready yeah. for me to blow your mind? Because mm-hmm. when I say this, you're going to be to like, the point. "You're going to be like, oh, duh." Hey, you just, just made it that much worse. Denny Veneuve. Okay. Because we've done Sicario, we've done Arrival, and we've done Blade, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. So anyway, wow, that's yeah. That's correct. So, well done. Just wanted to throw that out there. No, you are 100% correct. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you already knew that, so there you go. So, the Shape of Water revolves around a top-secret research facility in the 1950s as a lonely janitor forms a unique relationship with an amphibious creature that is being held in captivity. <laughs> and they have sex. Yes. Thank you, Nick, for that. Mm-hmm. So the film stars Sally Hawkins and Michael Shannon, but also uh, has Richard Jenkins, Michael Stolberg, Octavia Spencer, and Doug Jones as the amphibian man because he couldn't have a cool name. And because he won the election. Yeah. In Alabama. Yeah. I'd way rather have this Doug Jones than the actual. Than Roy Moore. Well. Yeah. (laughs) um, So, yeah. This was a film that was way up on my list of anticipated films this year. Uh, I'm not the biggest Del Toro fan, uh, but I was very much looking forward to this film when I heard the premise. And the first trailer is one of the better trailers I've seen in a long time. Like, it was just fantastically put together. Um, So, yeah. Um, I'm glad this episode is like two months in the making because we meant to do this episode a long time ago. But <laughs> Back the at film, the beginning of December. The film never came out that close to us, and it took like four weeks for it to, so that yeah. sucked. But yeah. So who wants to go first? I don't care. You want me to go first? And then I'll kick it to you, Sam. Yeah. And Sam, you kick it to Alex. We've got a plan here. That's oh, good. my God. Look, it's just it. a little tease of what's to come. <laughs> um, I'm going to go first because... <laughs> Hey, you set it up. I sure did. Mm. I'm gonna go first because I don't think I have like a whole lot to say. I, um, but I'll just say this: I, I went and saw it. Uh, It's been a little while now. It's been about two to three weeks, um, and I very much enjoyed this movie. I love Del Toro, and I pretty much love any time he goes headfirst into a. I hesitate to call it horror because it's not that it's not in the genre, but it's misleading as a description, so to speak. to live. Yeah. And as someone who loved Crimson Peak, this is very much in line with that, which is not to say that it's the same kind of movie, but it's um, very much a movie in which you relish the kind of gothic, saturated, yet 
garish colors of del toro's hellish world in which human beings try to find connections with one another and this is probably the purest distillation of that uh that he's ever done i mean it doesn't get more uh he seemed pretty well in tune with the 50s here oh yeah yes yeah the whole period piece um part of it reminded me and tucson's not here to go oh yeah um (laughs) Uh, but part of it reminded me, Tucson, I hope you heard that, of uh, like Fallout in uh, the video games yeah. uh, in which, not that it's an apocalyptic wasteland, but the period details are feel like, I would say, garishly retro mm-hmm. um, in the way that they bleed into the text. Um, and, I, and I like that about it. And But yeah, it's never been more blunt in Del Toro's career than a lonely woman, a, a lonely mute woman mm-hmm. falling in love and fucking a fish. And I'm not being crude. Like, that's the crux of this movie, pretty yeah. much. All, everything else is just window dressing. And I, I kind of like that. For that reason, I like the fact that he doesn't uh, Del Toro as a as a story artist and as a director doesn't try to. Even though I, I have a few problems with the Russian mole storyline and all that, he doesn't try to take that storyline and make it the focus. So to speak, it's mostly he just tries to use that as buffer between the scenes mm-hmm. and. Uh, Overall, I, I, you know, I want to hear what you guys think, but I enjoyed the fact that I thought, A, the cast was excellent, yeah. um, and not just from their performances, but I, th- I just thought the casting was just sheer perfection. Even uh, the minor characters, like whoever the guy was who played the car salesman was great. Yeah. 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 Or I was going to say um, Octavia Spencer's husband. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which technically is a pivotal moment because he's the one who technically... Gives away. Flabbers. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. sends the movie off into that orbit. Um, and it's funny because we're being set up to that scene throughout the entire movie but we don't realize that right. but every every story we hear about him is actually Leads leading to, to that moment which I kind of find hilarious then uh, in retrospect um, but yeah every little character uh, every main character everybody is just pitch perfect in this movie I will yeah. say uh, when I saw this for the first time and yeah. then when I saw it again for the second time uh, I thought of you early on in the film because I'm this was like the most Nick Cheney thing ever <laughs> Uh, early on in the film, when uh, the camera goes from her apartment and goes through the floorboards down into the movie theater, yes. I'm sure you were just fucking loving it. So that. let me talk about that opening <laughs> 10 minutes really quick, or maybe five minutes, but whatever. Um, before I saw this, I was really liking the trailer, but I also started mm-hmm. to get apprehensive about whether this was going to be for me, which a movie never has to be, but I was just trying to gauge what you know what I was going to get if out of it. was going to be in your wheelhouse or exactly. not. And... The opening five minutes, I have to admit, the movie probably never <laughs> got on my wavelength as much as it was in that opening five minutes. But when this movie introduced a lonely soul frequently masturbating on top of a movie theater, I, you know, I'm not trying to give too much of a window into my <laughs> life, but I was kind of scared that somebody was wiretapping my bedroom. And I just got to say, Every single uh, touch of that, from the sec decoration to the editing and the rhythm of her finger... No, of the (laughs) editing... I'm sorry, I had to do that. But no, um, but like that was such a wonderful introduction to this world and that character Mm -hmm. because she can't speak, which is kind of a hard trick to pull. uh, And 
we do learn everything we need to know about her from, you know, the way she makes her eggs to the, you know, all the other little Even things. Even down to, like, the shoes and yeah. the way she picks them and then she's Agreed. Uh, cleaning them off. Uh, um, and all her that. Daily routines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, that felt like what Baby Driver should have been, if that sounds like. Cause I felt mm-hmm. like I was learning so much about the character, so I never once got distracted by the fact that Del Toro was kind of being self-indulgent in his, like, oh, look at how this goes perfectly in sync with the score and whatnot. Right. Um, so I, I was absolutely floored, and I think it sets a great foundation for the movie to come. I'll say I have slightly mixed feelings about the overall arc of the movie, which is to say that I'm all here for the relationship between uh, uh, her and the the fish. Um, <laughs> Amphibian man? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm not entirely always convinced by it and and we'll get into that but overall i can kind of understand why this is kind of cleaning up at award shows and whatnot oh this is gonna this uh you know every year there's like a film that's going to end up winning six oscars yeah. and this is that film and i know Not because it's gonna win best picture but no, it's going to win but it's one of those things where i know why it's nominated for everything it. and it's not just a mad max where it's like it's such a technically proficient film where right. this is that but this is such a good dose of surrealism that mm-hmm. I would say mainstream audiences will not choke on. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, I think it like I'm excited by that fact that some director decided to trick the masses into liking Their a, a yeah. fish sex film. Like, cause that's what it is. Um, however, I feel like it could have gone a little further. And I don't mean that like sexually, but I do mean that in. We don't um, see his penis, so what's that all? Okay, I made a joke to you about that, but I also (laughs) wasn't joking. Like, I guess I just like I'm sorry, but we see her completely. I mean, Sale Hawkins is like all the way naked in this show, and I'm not against that whatsoever. But but I'm like, no offense, but your premise is that she fucks a fish. Don't. Don't save that for a funny anecdote. Like, show me the fish has a penis or doesn't, and maybe it's. A, I gotta say, maybe both... it's a genderless fish. But if your character says it has a penis, I want to see the penis. Even in, <laughs> even in, I mean, I, note to self. I, I guess not even because some of the climate that we live in, whatever. But I was, I was looking around for walkouts. By yeah. the way, during that part, not because no, not because I think people should have, but I was, I was just. Waiting for it. Yeah. That's when you like shout out, oh yeah, like your sex life is so great. (laughs) (laughs) So Sam, what did you think about this film? Um, I, so like both of you, the first time I saw the trailer, um, when it initially like was announced, probably some, like several months back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my good friends and I, um, she had sent it to me and she's like, Oh my gosh, this movie looks amazing. And just from that trailer alone, I actually started to become like really excited for this film and I wanted to see it no matter what. Um, one being, um, Del Toro. And I know having watched Crimson Peaks, I like his aesthetic and the feel of his directorial choices. Um, but then also, I liked the idea of the plot because um, it's something that's 
um, like you said, it's surrealism, but at the same time, it's that little bit of like sci-fi aspect of it, and it's that classic sci-fi of like 1950s. Yeah, um, this also the has... creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. yeah. Also, too, this very much has an early Steven Spielberg feel to it yep. at points. So I don't know if it's just it should be called off... the Fuck Boy from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> I was gonna say I, I hope I don't think this is cribbing off of Stranger Things or anything, but. No. At the same time, it definitely has a little bit of that feel to it, yeah. of like an ET or something like that. I, I was, gonna, I think Sam's on to something when you say that it, it reminds you of the creature features from the like the blob yeah. and creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. But Del Toro is not interested in demonizing the creature. Right. It's rather and and kind of going off of that. It's kind of in this sense of humanizing the things that we often try to demonize. Um, and I think that that was kind of evident in the way that the scientist was treated bob quote-unquote or dimitri um and how you know if you think about that time era 1950s with the red scare of course you know you're going to be terrified of a of a russian spy um especially one that's coming in and trying to learn about a you know a secret asset that the government has and yet i i very fondly like the the quote that he says about um, that he came here and he's not just Russian, he's a scientist. Um, and which that, also has my favorite quote from the whole movie after that, which is, mm-hmm. we don't need to learn about it. We need the Americans to not learn about it. Yeah. Which is... Mm. That, mm-hmm. that whole, like that, that moment in the movie was actually one of my favorites. Considering that this film actually follows... Um, Eliza and the amphibian man and whatever that was actually I think out of a good portion of films that I've seen lately that was probably one of my favorite subplots um, that actually interconnected with the the main plot Um, and something else about this film that I very much enjoyed was um, that this is one of the first times that we've seen a mute character too that has actually taken the forefront of something um, on the flip side, I agree with you, Nick, about, um, there's, there's something lacking in the relationship between Eliza and the amphibian man. And I don't know if it's the pacing of the relationship. Cause I don't know if we see, um, cause I guess maybe my problem with it was the time passage and knowing how much has passed and hasn't passed. Um, and seeing that relationship evolve either too quickly or it just we didn't see enough of the in-between as to how it grew to that final point. Yeah, I'll say just to back you up in that I have no issue with anything that we see. I mostly have issue with the feeling that we're still missing something right. in translation. And it, especially for me at least, somewhat sticks out from the... Uh, the switching of the sets from the lab to the apartment yeah. where I, I don't want to say their relationship magically goes forward simply because of the heist, which I was expecting slightly more of a pushback from the creature because I agree. all she did was took him from one place where he's being held hostage to another. And I don't mean that literally not being cuffed or anything like right. that, but it's not like she just took him to the ocean and, and I know why yeah. she can't <sighs> do that. But the, all I'm saying is that um, there was more of a tenuous relationship between Hogarth and the Iron Giant than there is between this. And I, I, I can buy into that it is a classical Hollywood romance. So there's mm-hmm. a love at first sight 
element yeah. here, which is totally fine. But due to the fact that these characters cannot speak, which is totally fine, mm-hmm. um, I felt I needed a little more action on screen. And I mean that two ways. <laughs> well, there is the other side of that coin a little bit in that he had the relationship with her and he's the, she's the only person that he really has that relationship with. Yeah. Although we see that the doctor is very kind to him. So right. you have to assume. And he that... was probably attracted to him, too. Yeah, okay. So at any rate, so... Don't when... close any doors. Exactly. <laughs> so... I'm just saying, once it doesn't work with the diner boy, I feel like he would have been like, hey, fish boy, I'm home. We'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get yeah, to that. Yeah, we will. Yeah. yeah, that's probably my least favorite scene. Yeah. Not that's... because of him, but because of what happened after. Yeah. Yes. Or before. With the... Yeah. Uh, after. The African-American people? Yeah, yes. because it's like... I don't think the film was until that, for one scene only, folks, uh, the film... We're going to tackle racism. Yeah, or just tackle every prejudice, not every, but like, oh, he's in love with the diner boy, and I totally did not think that the diner boy was ever into him or anything but heterosexual, Mm -hmm. but there was a way to kind of do a repressed love without being like, oh, it's the 1950s, folks. Like, well, yeah, but you know what? Your roommate's fucking a fish, so clearly this is a magical 1950s. And so when the African-American couple comes in and that guy literally like drops his accent or something and he's just like, y'all ain't welcome here or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's just, or, I well, don't know. There's a whole story behind that though. Like, yeah. Cause he's got the Southern yeah. accent, but he's there from is... Ottawa, Canada. I, yeah. And I get that. All I'm saying is like, it just made it more dramatic and therefore more silly. It was out of left field. Actually. And then the way Richard yeah. Jenkins is like, Oh, you didn't have to talk to him like that, which no offense, but I don't buy that. This random man in his 60s is going to be that tolerant of, like, you know, you can say it's Del Toro, you know, switching it up on the audience as right. far as general generational differences. But that in and of itself is a clash with this very retro pastiche of everything we love about the 50s. What What it really seemed like to me, especially after the second viewing, yeah. is that Del Toro didn't have a great reason for him to leave without it turning into a huge blow. Yeah, it just seemed like he couldn't resolve the storyline mm-hmm. without him just not liking him. So he's yeah. got to be a big racist, which, which is totally fine. Yeah. It's a two-minute scene, whatever. But anyway. I do kind of... That was actually one of the scenes that when I saw it, I kind of sat there for a moment and wasn't sure if we necessarily needed all of that scene um i think it could have been a bit tighter um it could have been a bit more um concise to bring the the neighbor i can't remember his name um back to the apartment to say yeah i'll help you with you know getting the amphibian man um but his name is giles by the way giles that's what it was Uh, i knew it started with a g and i was like i don't want to say the wrong one um (laughs) but that and I get the purpose of the scene, but at the same time, I think that particular scene, um, and um, there was one other one too. Um, While you're thinking about it, yeah, I was gonna say the only other reason why that scene just sticks out is I feel like that's when the film is also we're already overcrowded with villains. Yes, between Michael Shannon and a possible Michael uh, Stolberg, as far mm-hmm. as who's working against. 
mm-hmm. what you know these characters are doing. That to add that as a subplot, it just feels like everybody is out to get these two uh, unlucky in love characters. Yeah, and which obviously Del Toro is going for. Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, and, and one other random thing is when uh, the diner boy, that's who I call him. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he has a name. Yeah. He has I don't one. think he does Don, either. Diner boy. But when he turns around uh, to the African-American couple, it reminded me of a Disney sports movie trying to teach racism. Like, remember the Titans, which... His his name in the credits is Pie Guy. Oh, Pie Guy. <laughs> hey, that, that makes sense. Um, where, like, I just think of, like, the one scene in Remember the Titans when that guy stands up... Oh, Work or what is it? My boy ain't playing for no coach, you know, and um, little things like that. Where I'm yeah. just like, you know, we're just going, and that's a movie about racism, so that that's fine. But here it's just anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, that's pretty much the extent. So um, so or, overall, yeah. did did you did you enjoy this film? Did you? I did. Okay. Um, I really enjoyed this film um, for a variety of reasons. Um, considering that I'm kind of like saying, oh, I, yeah. um, I actually very much like this film and I, I've only seen it once, but as I mentioned earlier, um, to you guys, I would love to see it a second time. Yeah. Um, just to kind of the first time through you're watch you're trying to watch and listen for so many different things. And on the second time, you know, you can actually kind of focus in on some of the more, you know, some more of the details and the things that maybe you didn't realize the first time through um, and seeing those little things and how they actually really come together to, to play a, a really nice part in this entire piece. Um, so overall, I've, I very much enjoyed it. Great. So what about you? I was just going to say yeah. that I was mostly just holding off on my praise because I knew once we got to you – uh, that would open up that dialogue. What? So, continue. <laughs> so, when I went and saw this the first time, and that was right... Uh, I can't remember if it was right after or right before Christmas. I felt like you saw it like the day after Christmas or okay, something it was, like that. It was right around Christmas. Um, I went and saw this when it was still limited, so we went to a theater that was not close to here. And I went with my wife, Emily, who wanted to see this just as much, almost as I did. Uh, not necessarily because she's a Del Toro fan, because I don't even know if she's seen any other of his films other than the Hellboy films. I know she's seen the first one, at least. But she loved the trailer, just like I did, just like a lot of people did. Um, and we saw this film, and the first time through, I pretty much thought this was a very good film. Um, I thought it was one of the more beautiful films I've ever seen, and I still think that... Uh, the second time through, though, uh, when I saw it just a couple days ago, I thought this was absolutely fantastic. And I think the second time through really does a benefit to this particular film, just because, for me at least, I got to see all of the little details of this getting paid off. And not that I didn't see them the first time, but the second time through, you're not necessarily paying as much attention to the plot and mm-hmm. every single line of dialogue. But... All the little things, like the idea of her, A, um, taking, going as far to taking the day off of the calendar in the first scene of the film, Mm -hmm. and then writing the day of the calendar when she's going to release the Amphibian Man, uh, you know, later on in the film, and that is how Michael Shannon finds out that she's actually where she's releasing the Amphibian Man in. There are so many parts of that in this film that are 
small plot details that we as the audience see that could be just completely disregarded, yeah. but then come back later in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two that I definitely noticed were the idea of the, the different gelatin and the red versus the green gelatin. Yeah. And later in the film, we see Michael Shannon's family with the green gelatin as they're sitting watching the, the television show, whatever it was. Also, the key lime pie looks like green gelatin and yeah. not actually key lime pie. I just had to point that out how because that ref- was something that bothered me. How about uh, Giles' refrigerator full of the key lime pies, too? So he just been going back there buying yeah. those. Yeah. Even if he doesn't like it. Yeah. Well, that's okay. He was going for a very specific purpose. Um, and Michael Shannon's character, who... Uh, first of all, I've got thoughts on him. Uh, even though I didn't love him the first time, because I'm a huge Michael Shannon fan, but I felt like he was uh, being abused in his goodness a little bit <laughs> the first time, because I felt like he was being cast uh. to play his exact character, which is like kind of ruining the charm of Michael Shannon to me. But the second time through, I was not thinking about that. I was just totally pretty much on board with his character. Because... I personally think he's pretty much great every time out, and this was really no exception. But um, the idea that he has that whole scene uh, with Eliza telling her how he kind of likes the idea that she doesn't talk, we have a very clear Mm -hmm. idea that he is like all in on this idea of men having power over women. And then we have the very awkward sex scene where he's holding his bleeding hand over his wife's face. Yeah, Um, that scene scene I actually had a visceral reaction to mm-hmm. and i was very bothered by it mm. um you should have been and, and even um even when so he spills a cup of water in his office mm-hmm. um and he has eliza specifically come to clean it up and his comments about that he likes women who don't make a sound mm. and you yeah. can tell that they're very sexually pointed like comments oh, yeah. that he's making towards her and mm-hmm. Her her rage that she gets when she leaves and everything. I I was completely with her, and I I was ready to like stand up and like be like, yes, tell him off, just do it, run. Tell, tell him off, even though he can't speak. But that's <laughs> and right. one of the early interactions, yeah, sign him off. How's yeah. that? She does later. Yeah, yeah. she does. Which I yeah. loved that. Mm-hmm. That was. Um, I was going to say one of the earlier reaction, interactions between them two is when he comes into the bathroom. Oh, yeah. that scene, which oh. is like oh clinically the equivalent of pulling out your penis in front of... I mean, totally literally is. that's what he's doing, yes. but also he's technically just going to the bathroom or whatever. How about, how about his that whole... Is, his yeah. whole the washing mo- hands one? Oh, the whole monologue about mm. how real yeah, men only we, wash their hands before, before or after, and it's just like... Never... What? Tw- that, yeah. that bothered me. Like, I was sitting yes. there, and I was... And and I have I have a lot of male friends... Um, and, and I just kind of sat there for a moment and I was like, I hope to God that this is not something that is like among men of the, like, in, in like today's society, because if so, I am going to have like, like black lights with every person that I interact with and be like, wash your hands. Did you? It's (laughs) funny you say that, Alex, we have to talk. (laughs) So, (laughs) son of a bitch. So. What I was saying, though, about how this film really does, the script is so good. And, like, Del Toro's scripts are never really the absolute best part of it's the film. It's not the selling point of a no, Del Toro but film. his script here is actually really good, I think, especially the second time through. Because the idea of the whole hand-washing scene, like, nine minutes later, or however long it is, 
we get the very awkward sex scene, but mm-hmm. we have her telling her specifically to wash his yeah. hands yeah. before sure. they have sex. And it's just, there's so yeah. much of that throughout this entire film that mm-hmm. I just absolutely love. I can see that. Um, and I, I love the idea of him buying the car and then the next scene we see him driving. And actually, that was one of the parts of the film. And that's why I think this is such a great film. Because all the things that I was like, eh, are why like small, tiny, yeah. timing things. Because when Richard Jenkins, uh, the amphibian man, and Eliza escape in the in the van, I wish they would not have made so much of him running into Michael Shannon's new car. Yeah. Like, I wish it would have been like a one-off, like, just trying to get away from them shooting, and he runs into it, and then we circle back to seeing his car getting fucked up, and I'm like, oh. Yeah. Like, it would have been much better. But getting back to the overall just film in general, I, there are so much... There's so many parts of this that I just absolutely adore. I, this is an absolutely beautiful film, a mm-hmm. wonderful score by Alexander Desplat. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. The um, the opening like piece, the opening um um song when they're like, in the that, water. Yeah, yeah. It's that like beautiful eerie like haunting sort of um I can't remember. I Well, the the accordion comes in yes. which is fabulous. Yeah, and it's it's just it's just it's just wonderful. And, I mean, there is a reprise of the main uh, song from the film throughout, which is pretty common. Um, but the different ways that the score weaves throughout the film, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. Uh, another part of this, which is a strength of Del Toro, obviously, but the uh, the actual amphibian man played wonderfully, I thought, by Doug Jones. Um, even though it was a, real, a little weird because... Doug Jones really looked like, to me, similar to Abe Sapien from uh, yeah. Hellboy, which was actually a little distracting. I was actually going to say that, like mm-hmm. it's um, it it was kind of like you just said, it was kind of weird that this role. Uh, I'll just say this about mm-hmm. Doug Jones' work in here, which is very good, mm-hmm. but. I guess I'm going to criticize it a little bit and say that the people that are putting his work in this movie on the same page as like what Andy Serkis does Ooh. as Caesar. And A, I, they're going for completely different things mm-hmm. as far as um, engagement with the audience, you know. But B, I don't, I don't really feel like I understand the Fish character mm-hmm. outside of eliza's perspective i agree which is totally fine because i think it works for this movie Mm -hmm. but he does not stand on his own like you couldn't watch this movie like you can watch those you know apes movies like you could watch a movie that only stars caesar and no other character you know because he's the main character of all three of those films and it's not that doug jones Mm -hmm. character is not the main character of this movie but he could never be because he just from what he did with his character at least in this script um (laughs) it's just not the same kind of work he's doing well with yeah. what he's given. I'm saying he's doing good. Mm-hmm. But the idea that they're doing something of the same caliber, it's just not I quite. I agree. I actually thought that was another one of my slight criticisms of the film is that we only really get into the really strong uh, character intricacies with him when it's almost too late. Yes. Yeah, part of him is a mystery box and yeah. we don't get to know the full extent of who he is until the end because mm-hmm. 
Del Toro wants to kind of save the resolution to be a surprise, so to speak. And it, which it is and it isn't. Like we get, well, yeah. We I don't mean like a shock. Shadows of it, but you know, we don't yeah. get the uh, we don't get the answers until the end that he is capable of this or that. And I feel like it's that kind of writing that stops this movie from stops it short of being like an all time classic or great. Where if if he had been less worried about making that character into a uh, character out of a fable and could have just been a more grounded uh, fish fuckboy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hashtag new title. Exactly. Um, yeah, but anyway. Well, I actually have to say, and that's and that's why I think I like this film so much now, is even though I'm pretty much right with you in what you just said, Nick, um, and I think you pretty much have the same thoughts, Sam, on, on, on uh, the amphibian man's character, there was just something about that final scene when he rises up after being shot with the way the yeah. score is going and the way he stands with the rain coming off of him. It's like, it is like a moment when that happens. Mm-hmm. And then when he turns towards Michael Shannon and starts walking him, and his face looks like an angry cat. And it's yeah. great. Yeah. And just like the cat he, he ate yeah, earlier he in ate. the film. Could Emily be. did not care for that, <laughs> by the way, believe it or not. I believe it. Yeah, uh, but that was just such a great power moment just yeah. because you've got Michael Shannon who's been this weird, bizarre, um, bleeding, face-covering, fucking... Power-hungry. Yes, uh, standing in the mirror saying that he delivers and all this shit. <laughs> yeah. um, and yet he's sitting there in his line of, oh, fuck, you are really a god. And he gets his throat slit. Yeah. And that's and pretty that's much him. it. That's it. <laughs> yep. Um, that scene was fucking amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was a big fan of that climax. And really quick to finish my yeah. initial thoughts, I am starting to come around on the idea that the ending is a little bit slightly ambiguous about Eliza's character. I agree. Because there is the thought out there floating around the scary internet. Floating around. Yeah, <laughs> that Pun. Eliza actually is much more has much more in common with the amphibian man than she does with humans because the idea that she was found by mm-hmm. the river, she's already got the slits in her throat. That they're gills secretly, mm-hmm. and that's what. Yep. That she's actually a, a very similar person to what the amphibian man was. I didn't she... need the internet for that one. Oh, see. <laughs> Um, but, but I like the idea that that is left with kind of an ambiguous idea of her maybe just being a human, Mm -hmm. that it's, that it's at least left up to the viewer to decide Mm -hmm. what they believe. And I I like that idea a lot. Because that was something that initially when they mentioned about the, the scratches on her neck or like the, the scars on her neck, I was very, um, confused because I... And and I don't know if it was a logistical thing, because um, I was trying to think. Okay, well, where are your vocal cords in your throat? You know, can you actually you know sever them via these entry points and and things like that? And and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, just don't worry about it. That's that's not important right now. But I did find it very odd that it was matching on both sides. Um, so either it was really like calculated surgery that felt more just like del toro set dressing you know right um, and just trying to make a pastel like yeah uh, configuration of disfiguration and that and and i realized that probably i would say once she actually 
interacted positively with the amphibian creature or amphibian man um that there was something about the the scars and that it that was actually my initial like comment to myself when i was watching it was oh i bet the scars are gills and then i just left left it and i was like that's probably why you know she's probably somehow related to this species or whatever and i went into total like sci-fi like speculative fiction yeah, like that's why she fantasy. masturbates in the tub <laughs> No, but uh, I, I bring that up, but I will remark. So anybody who does that is just automatically you within the line of may or may not be an amphibian god. So. <laughs> Catch me out there just sprinkling that fish food. No. Um, but I will remark upon, uh, I actually really liked that. Not that it's a callback, because from the moment you see it, you understand its place in the mm-hmm. in this movie. But yeah. the idea that the tub in and of itself is this realm in which she experienced sexual ecstasy is pretty potent once the fish man comes back to her apartment for a coffee. And uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then that the fact is that they don't go to a bedroom. Because I remember before I saw this movie I, and I heard that this was, you know, the, the fish fucking movie, I was like <laughs> having these weird images of like them flopping around on a bed. <laughs> Literally, because they're fishies. Um, oh, man. But the fact, obviously, that Del Toro knows exactly what he's doing, uh, and I think he's done this before. Um, <laughs> Fish fucking? Yeah. <laughs> um, Him personally, yes. or he's watched it? Oh, no, he's he's done it before. That's a he looks new- like you a- don't make a movie like this and... <laughs> Without some kind of personal experience. This is a new subcategory <laughs> oh, yeah. that you can find on Pornhub. Actually, oh. honestly, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Not on Pornhub, but how many movies have been here first? Uh, there's Humanoids from the Deep, which was a Roger Corman horror flick in which fish men were coming out of the sea to rape women. Uh, it's not a I love story. I, yeah, I but think I remember. have a lot of films with mermaids, one. too. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that the whole siren you know, trope in and of yeah. itself. Um, although what's interesting... We watched, we watched The Lure we, together. We watched mm-hmm. The Lure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of what's interesting about this movie in general, too, is that there is never any sense of that kind of dynamic working here Mm -hmm. whereas this is a helpless creature actually helpless uh, in which someone connects with them just on the basis of recognizing themselves within them Mm -hmm. and sex comes later which only reinforces the strength of their relationship in general and and, connection yes and Mm -hmm. that's what makes it great um so i i was kind of kind of surprised that there was no in a good way, that there was no general, you know, mermaid. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I was just waiting for, like... Romance fantasy. Yeah, or, like, for there to be another fish boy named Triton to come along or something. So Steal his girl. Yeah, so... Yeah, c- catch me outside. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I know, Nick, you enjoyed Michael Shannon's character. And I did. I, I know I'm a huge fan of his, but let's talk about his character a little bit, because Michael Shannon always, for me, delivers at least interesting performances, and I think he does here, too. Yeah, definitely interesting. But I think his character actually only gets better as the film goes on, because I think when we start out, I think it's what the issue was for me the first time, where I was thinking that 
just from the beginning, he obviously was hired to be Michael Shannon in this film, which he is. Um, but I think early on, he's just kind of playing a version of himself where we get the fantastic monologue uh, he gives to, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting Olivia's or Octavia Spencer's name in this film. Zelda. 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 Uh, when he's delivering that amazing uh, monologue about Samson early on and saying how he's yeah. going to bring the entire house down on her and all that. Um, we have the whole idea of his fucked up fingers. Um, mm. Which, but, that is something that was, uh, it was kind of disgusting. It like, was. Watching them progress into, like, that black and decayed. Yeah. Like, Can I say, non-jokingly, that Michael Shannon's fingers was my favorite arc in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure? I'm dead serious in the sense that... That was, I felt like Del Toro at his best, which is he doesn't go to the length that someone like David Cronenberg does in exhibiting body horror, but there's always something about flesh and the way it can be um, manipulated. manipulated or corroded. It's because they decay. Yeah, yeah, that can tell you something about a character. When he when that he, this when, is maybe the uh, most blunt version of that, but what I loved about this movie and that particular whatever is that from the moment that happened, like from the moment that his fingers got chopped off, and then he, you know, they were back on, you know, whatever. I was like, I from that moment, and I'm really bad about guessing things. But from that moment, I literally said, I cannot wait until Michael Shannon rips off his own fingers out of spite. Oh, yeah. Because that's how clear-cut this uh, character was and mm-hmm. this uh, visual motif was. Mm-hmm. So by the time it does happen, it was grosser than I thought it would be in a good way. And it it came at the right time where I was like, oh, hell yeah. Before we have him even pulling them off, we have him breaking them and having the pus. Yeah. Oh. yeah. yeah. And even in those final scenes before he rips them off, like... It's almost more gross than when he rips them off because they are just hanging on for dear life. And you can tell that there's like the the pus at one point where he like pops it, and then like other characters are like, "Do you smell that?" Yes. Like, yes. And and th- there's no need for like smell o vision or anything like that. But if you're ever aware of that, like you realize what that setting must be like, and you're kind of immersed more into the film. With just those like simple little things about it. Yeah. And it only furthers the motif that he does not do anything productive with his hands. Uh, I'm just saying, you know, yeah. like from the bloodied hand across his, uh, you know, his wife's face mm-hmm. to the deceased fingers that he had tries to keep to the washing of in which uh, he feigns importance. And so mm-hmm. I, I just thought that was such a clear cut uh, imagery in the grotesque uh, where not everything was on that level. And yeah, yeah. I was just going to say uh, getting away a little bit from his fingers. Oh, but sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> did no, I guess have, we're did, no, if subject you have more to say, change. No, I don't. <laughs> no, okay. I was going to say dickhead. Um, his <laughs> final scene. Yeah. With the general uh, when he's saying all these reasons about how when somebody makes one mistake and then the general mm-hmm. gives him like this huge monologue about all the reasons why his life is pretty much over and then he ends it by saying go unfuck this mess yeah. um that was such a very like 
turning moment for Michael Shannon's character, but at the same time, it really wasn't because yeah. it's kind of an escalating moment. Yeah, it was more of like know? the final nail. Like yeah. from that moment on, he was just going to go full force into his own mm-hmm. death, which is great yeah. because we get that fabulous scene of him and uh, his coworker in the car in the final moment uh, that we see his coworker. When he tells him to get the fuck out of the car, and he says it's <laughs> his car, car. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's that's just great. And I also love uh, their interaction earlier too. After we get the whole thing about the car being teal and not green, and then he yeah. says, "Oh, what a wonderful shade of green, <laughs> teal." Yeah. yeah. So, did anybody else have any other thoughts on his character? Because I thought, even though it's not my favorite Michael Shannon performance, I thought he was fantastic here. I thought he did a good job for what the role was mm-hmm. you know um i don't think it was anything that was extraordinary or award-winning mm-hmm. yeah. um but sure. i definitely think that for this piece it was a very well done job yeah. um it for it, me oh no, no go no, ahead because no. i was gonna like segue into something else i was just going to say that like you're saying it didn't stand out in the way that jenkins and hawkins do sure. um as mm-hmm. far as like transcending their roles for me. Mm-hmm. So um, for that much, I appreciate it. But I also think that in this story, you know, we're good triumphs evil. Evil is not as important uh, as the two good-hearted characters. So mm-hmm. it fits right along in this universe. So before we get into talking about uh, Richard Jenkins yes. and Sally Hawkins, don't want to forget about Michael Stolberg, who's fantastic yeah. uh, in pretty much everything. We just talked about everything. him. Well, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I'm saying. No, like, I'm reiterating. <laughs> Actually, everything. it has yeah. to be said twice. Yeah. Uh, we just talked about him and called me by your name. He has a fantastic final monologue in that film. Uh, and here he's playing very similar to a lot of other characters that we've seen him as throughout his you know, filmography. But he's very much exactly who was hired here. and He delivers that exact performance. He took a role that should have been much worse. I think like if anybody else had done it, it would have been, uh, I would say a, a pretty bad part of the script. Hmm. And I think he pretty much brings it up to speed as far as, uh, he makes it work when, in my opinion, it's a little too convoluted to fit into this world. I mean, you have Hawkins and, um, uh, Jenkins and the character of Giles and Michael Shannon all have clear-cut ideologies and goals and his conflict would be rich in a different movie but in this movie it's kind of a distraction Hmm. which is to say that I think Michael Stolberg does a great job with what he's given um, but almost feels out of place I mean you know he's kind of Especially, you know, two years after Bridge of Spies or something like that, where we, we've been down this road of a, you know, Russian, uh, I don't know, plant somehow caught between his own ideology and loyalty to his country. Mm-hmm. Um, so considering that's a subplot, that's just a little too much for me to handle in, in a in a sidecar. Um, mm-hmm. But Michael Stolberg certainly does what he can with it to the extent where I appreciate that is in the movie. I just don't think it always works. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, I will say about his his subplot and, and that character, I think the idea of the Russians infiltrating in is such a huge part of the actual story, even when it's just in the background. Yeah. Because this idea... But none of that has to do with Sally Hawkins' character. Mm-hmm. It 
doesn't, but it progresses the plot at least. True. So, but are you watching this movie for the plot? Or are you watching this movie for fish fucking? I mean, I think a little Which bit of both. Which are you watching it for? Fish we know, fucking. We know Nick's here for fish fucking <laughs> yeah. all the way. I was watching it for like the pretty colors and things like that. Which but. is valid. Then you were probably in good shape because yep. there's a lot of that here. Good shape. <laughs> shape of what? So what about the main, I guess they're not the main character, but Sally Hawkins yeah, is the go. main character. And then Richard Jenkins is obviously giving another wonderful character actor performance here. Um, I thought Sally Hawkins was fantastic. And I actually I liked her more than Frances McDormand um, in her role. But. In Three Billboards? Yeah. Oh, I they met in this movie. No. I was, she was like, wait, I was gonna this say, movie's been redone? Frances McDormand was so good in this movie. She wasn't even there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I thought I thought she gave the best acting performance of the year for me, uh, hmm. just because... Best actress or acting? Like, everybody. Um, I mean, just curious. I guess I haven't seen Phantom Thread yet, so it's hard mm. to put that for sure. Yeah. Because it's DDL yeah, it along with PTA. DDL. So. <laughs> but, um, no, I thought okay. with the limitations that she had as an actress in this, mm-hmm. I thought she delivered a complete knockout performance. And I love uh, the scene with her and Richard Jenkins when she asks him to say everything she's signing, which is a little bit for the audience, which we're watching a movie, so whatever. Okay. Um, but that whole scene when she goes through all the different signs, like mm-hmm. you could tell that that was a very well rehearsed yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, and I thought she delivered that scene and almost every other moment she was in just fantastically here. So yeah, yeah. I thought she was great. No, she's absolutely a standout and probably. I guess my favorite part of this movie is Richard Jenkins, but I think she's the one who's doing the best work as far as um, taking what she's given. And even if she's not my favorite performance of the year, anybody who calls her their, you know, like I would totally understand. It's not like something I look at from afar and go, ooh. Um, <laughs> so, no, I, I think she absolutely knocks out of the park. And especially in a movie in which you have to sell this central premise, which, yeah. like, that's going above and beyond the call of duty. Because it's one thing to, shall we say, complete these steps of this dance. It's another thing to actually dance this uh, routine. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm basically, I'm with you, and I think she's fantastic. I just kind of give a slight edge to Richard Jenkins because I felt like his character was slightly more n- nuanced in a way where I would watch a whole other movie with him. Yeah. In a way where, like, Sally Hawkins' character doesn't really have much else other than this romance. But the idea of like Richard Jenkins wasting away in this apartment above a movie theater. And he was fired from his job because fired he's from the job away. and still yes. trying to work, um, you know, uh, current day. Uh, there was so much pathos there in everything he does, whether it was his non work or yeah. his uh, tenant relationship or his um, just overall. His cats, too, even. His like, cats. Just, yeah. yeah. But oh, I was going to say his overall good-heartedness in encouraging others to try to find their best life because he maybe uh, was not going to be able to do that from yeah. now on. Uh, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I could have used even more of that. So that's why he's probably my favorite. I think one of the reasons why maybe for you he might stand out a bit more is also because I think when we... Throughout the film, when we look at um, 
Sally Hawkins character um, that we're, we're kind of, in a sense, forced to focus on certain aspects of her character rather than giving us the whole gamut, yeah. um, which is what we get with Giles. Um, and we're given that, that opportunity to see all of the different parts of his life. Um, but because this is about her love with the fish, you're only going to see, I I feel like it was intentional that you get that very myopic sense of who she is. Um, just to focus your attention better. Um, that's not to say that, you know, he was a million times better than her or vice versa or anything like that. But I think that might play a factor in, into why his role may stand out a little bit more. Agreed. And even the opening basically suggests that the uh, fish man is the thing that interrupts her routine. Mm-hmm. You know, like she is a person who does the same thing every day yeah. and nothing is going to change that because she doesn't believe she's, uh, I always think not so much that she doesn't believe she's capable or worthy, but she just doesn't believe that the opportunities are there mm-hmm. based on the uh, environment she's living in right. uh, until lo- she's proven wrong. I love the idea, and this is so 1950s, um, the idea that she lives in this shit apartment that's a beautiful apartment. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, she's such a poor person. I'm like, I would kill to live there. <laughs> It is actually a really beautiful, like, apartment set up, too. And even, like, the way that, like, the neighbor is set up across from her, too. Like, his his small space is actually really, like, quaint and, and mm-hmm. kind of cozy and everything. Very well lit. Yes. Um, through the windows and mm-hmm. everything, which is an important part of the film, but also is beautiful. In the, I think that's another part of this film that I loved the first time and even appreciated more. Uh, on the second viewing is that this is just an absolutely beautiful film. Um, I'm 100% rooting for Roger Deakins to win best cinematographer just because he deserves an Oscar for a lifetime of, uh, but cinematography here, even stuff down to production design and costume design is not that this is like the favorite, but everything about this film is just quality work from everyone who was involved top to bottom on the credits. Yeah. 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 Sure. Anything else that anybody wanted to talk about uh, as a group? Because we can certainly do that. Um, the only thing I wanted to say was about um, Sally Hawkins as well. Um, that I I think she was a perfect fit for playing a mute character. Um, and and I, I say that with regards to other like amazing and phenomenal actresses out there and things like that. But... Some of me worries that even some of the greatest ones that like even like the Meryl Streeps and things like that, I would I would be worried that they would try to oversell it, um, especially in a character of that position um, versus her character was very um, believable about everything versus and some of me wonders if maybe some other actresses would have totally played up way more facial like emotion or um, like expressions and would have kind of gone over the top compared to what they should have done mm. um so i kind of i i like that like the, those nuances that we've keep like we keep going back to you know a lot of her scenes especially early on is basically her not wanting to be in the spotlight yeah which is a very tricky role like it's one thing to do that on stage 
But it's another thing to do that on camera because right. the camera is literally on you. on you, and you are you you have to somehow be on while wanting to be off, and and mm-hmm. I think that's a hard balance, and she absolutely strikes it here and, and i'm with you in that especially as far as casting goes i feel like sally hawkins and this is not an insult to mm-hmm. her because i think she's a gorgeous woman yeah. but she has a face that i would say so perfectly aligns with this character's sullen withdrawnness yes. that is eerie in its in its uh i would just say perfectness as far it's as who, who they found yeah so yeah I second that. Yeah. yeah, and this is a interesting because she's really never been a true lead actress before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was in the film Happy Go Lucky. Yeah, um, which is supposed to be excellent. And I've never seen I it. Know. Uh, and I know she was the second female lead in Blue Jasmine, uh, which Kate Blanchett run. Yeah, but, but that wasn't really. It was. She's barely not barely in it, but no, she's, she's. You would forget that she's in it because it's really the Kate Blanchett show. And, it is, and, and her it. and Bobby Cannavale yeah. are more the supporting yeah. couple yeah. thing that is kind of there for color. Yeah, but she's great in it. She is, yeah. but here is is really her coming out of her shell, huh? Yeah, uh, and um, putting on a, a and the happy go lucky. I will admit, because um, you know who directed that? It's Mike Lee. Yeah, the guy yeah. who did the movie I love, uh, Naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, except it's supposed to be the exact opposite of what that movie is, which is a character who is so positive, eternally, yeah, yeah positive and whatnot. Oh man, and but she's na- supposed to be Naked amazing. is that one with David Thewlis, yes. right? He is like the like the most nihilistic yes! Yes, oh, uh, creature ever hmm? created. <laughs> kind of, because technically there's a person in there in that movie that's worse than him, <laughs> just by juxtaposition. But what does that mean if morality is simply just a relative tool we base uh, our judgment on human beings? Anyway, going off on a tangent. Um <laughs> But Sally Hawkins certainly has range if you watch something like that as a double bill with something like this. Mm-hmm. Well, the other part of it, too, is that the idea of, of playing a character who isn't able to speak is, is really... Um, I mean, this is why the film The Artist won Best Picture is because it was just different and it was trying to have a silent film in an era of non-silent films. It was yeah. like, oh, wow, somebody tried something different awards um and i've never actually seen that and actually really, really never yeah huh. is it good eh. okay that's why that's what I. it is much. very much a movie first of all the oscars will almost always go for any movie that celebrates movies which is why birdman won which is why the artist won uh mm-hmm. and so on and so forth uh, pr- provided that it's a prestige movie which both yeah. of those movies are um but yeah the artist is very funny because it's a movie that is, I guess, very good at technically recreating what a movie looked like back then and quote-unquote sounded like. (laughs) Mm. Um, But by that very definition, most of the movies back then were actually much better than the artists. So so it it, it only won because of the retro nostalgia. Speaking Mm -hmm. of movies celebrating movies, a movie that won many Oscars but did not win Best Picture, I watched for the second time finally uh, earlier this week, and that was Hugo. And that is a quite fantastic film. uh, That's a different movie because instead of uh, cashing in on that nostalgia, it simply celebrates it. Well, celebrates it and also uh, is... The leading to Ben Kingsley pretty much in this 
terrible spiral depression throughout the end of his life because he's no longer part of this celebrated movie community because everyone's depressed because of World War I. Uh, And that's, for the most part, the entirety of the film until the very end. And it tries to get kids to to like this, which is great. (laughs) And that's early... um, Chloe Garris Moretz. Uh, that was yeah. right around the time of Kick Ass One, so she's still I feel like it was like a just kid. after. Yeah, it was, she's so still she like a barely... child actor. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, and that's Asa Butterfield finishing second place for Spider Man. Yeah, I was gonna say our almost <laughs> Spider Man. Almost. Yeah, that's probably. But he was in Ender's Game, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was also in that really stupid film that was a huge bomb. Uh, There's a lot of those. Well, uh, but it was like a very silly teen film that came out about like a space character and he like lived in the space atmosphere oh, and then came um, to Earth. You're talking about, wait, are you talking about the Mars movie? Maybe. Where he lived on Mars. Yes. But the his his crush lived on Earth. Earth, yep. He's like the only boy on Mars. Mm. I think it's called like the the other side of something. Yeah. I it was a huge called. flop yeah, at the box office. Yeah. But yeah. Sorry, we're this is what we do all week, yeah. unfortunately. Just go off. We just like to okay. remind people that movies exist. I'm okay with it. I've never heard some of them sound like great recommendations and other ones I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna avoid that one. Yeah. I'm gonna look up what that was called. It was it was something I think it was called the space between us. Yes, that's what it was called. Yeah, there so we go. There we go. There we go. Okay. So let's go to final ratings. All right. Um I'll start first okay. if, if that's all right. No. Okay. Do we want to go backwards? Yeah, we do. Okay. okay. So me, then yeah, Sam, then Nick. Cool. Makes oh. sense. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. You want to take my spot? No. Fucking shithead. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, at least you don't live in a shithole country. There's something. Yep. So anyways, I thought this was fantastic. I, um, for the most part, adore this film. I, I don't think it's a perfect masterpiece necessarily, uh, because there are small little details that I think uh, were not perfectly executed. But almost every part of this I was way on board for and just enjoyed watching the entire two-hour, three-minute runtime. Um, parts that we didn't even get to, like Octavia Spencer, who mm-hmm. I thought delivered a very solid performance. She was very good. Um, playing that characterization to a T for the most part. Uh, and... Even the entire relationship with her and her husband that is commented on, like you mentioned, Nick, comes to a head late in the film, uh, was just great. But characters, acting performances, um, directing, the, the score, the the look of this film, pretty much everything I was just picking up with this movie, just putting down. And I, I loved it from start to finish. And even... Though we haven't talked about it as much as this film probably deserves, um, well, maybe deserves. Um, I thought the creature design here was actually fantastic, Mm -hmm. even though it has very human features. At the same time, I was way intrigued as the film went on, which I actually think is one of the negatives of this film. And and I guess I hit on it a little bit, but I think that this film only really gives you the intrigue of the monster, Mm -hmm. uh, towards the end of the film, which it was something that uh, was actually a detriment, I think, here. But uh, this is a fantastic film that I would pretty much rewatch multiple times in a short amount of time, which is... I wasn't sure about that after the first time I saw it, but now I, I'm 
very convinced that this is a uh, a film that I'm always going to be able to go back to. So it's a very high rating of four and a half out of five for me for The Shape of Water. Moving on to Sam. Yeah. Um, I have, I mean, you said it very well. Um, I absolutely adore this piece, um, partly because I love the del Toro aesthetics, as I know we talked about um, on Crimson Peaks as well. And um, just it's it's beautiful and visually stimulating to watch. And I, I very much enjoyed that aspect of, of film and even theater in general, too. Um, and there's just so many aspects of this that really you can tell there's that there's very few, if any at all. Um, there's nothing that hints at an anachronism. Um, it seems very much set in the 1950s, and and I I enjoy the set designs and even like the thinking through of you know these two kind of misfit characters living above a theater and um, and everything like you mentioned about the creature design too. Um, I it I'm not gonna lie, probably for the first like five ten minutes after the creature was um, introduced, I was kind of sitting there and I was like, hmm, is that just brilliant makeup? artistry and like costume design or is this cgi like would you know and and i was kind of sitting there for a moment and i was like if this is like makeup and costume design this is that's a really well done job um and from that as well as um actor performances um i can tell you that whenever um the oh shoot what's his name um the the guy with the hand um, Michael Shannon. That's the one. Uh-huh. Um, Michael Shannon, That his character was, while it wasn't anything that was superb, it was still so well done that I had visceral reactions to, mm. like, his portrayals um, and to, like, certain responses that his character had um, or actions that he did. Um, I also very much like that, you know, again, this is a, one of the films that we get to see a mute character kind of taking the spotlight. Um, even if, you know, she doesn't want it. Um, and I like that sci-fi aspect of it and so many other things uh, about this film. Um, but of course, you know, there are some, you know, minor considerations. I know we didn't get to talk about it. Um, but I, there's the one scene where, um, she and the amphibian man are sitting across from each other at the table and she goes into that like black Mm -hmm. and white, like daydream of her dancing with him. Um, that I was very, uh, I wasn't, I thought the, I thought the, if I can say this, I thought the dancing part of that was actually fabulous. And like the actions of the amphibian man, I thought were great. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought the transition to and from that was not that great. That I think yeah. that was why I wasn't a fan of it. Also, I love the dancing it's of it. Directly homaging something that La La Land just directly homaged <laughs> in its denouement, not denouement, but climax. Uh, so it felt like too even, much. Yeah, even that mm-hmm. it felt like too little, too late when it comes to uh, uh, paying homage to that very specific scenery. But mm-hmm. anyway. Um, aside from that, and then I know I had mentioned earlier about like the progression or pacing of the relationship, um, between, um, Eliza and the amphibian man. Um, and I, I think it's just some of the smaller things that could have been more refined, um, compared to how, you know, there were all these other smaller things that were so beautifully woven into this piece. Um, 
nevertheless, I, I again, like you, Alex, I would watch this movie again and again. Um, and I probably will once I, you know, have it on DVD and things like that. Um, so I'm going to give it a four out of five. Hi. Hi. Oh, you want me to go? (laughs) We're waiting. I am just kidding. I am going to give this a three and a half out of five. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that because. So much of what this movie is about is right up my alley. I mean, there is the blatant nostalgia for classic cinema. There is the impromptu musical numbers. There is the fish fucking, uh, which sounds like a that. which sounds like a joke. But no, I am actually into any. Uh, <laughs> I actually am into. <laughs> I was going to say I'm actually into any movie that explores. Any sexual relationship that is not reflective of what I would call a heteronormative, uh, you know, relationship, uh, at least as far as what we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there is so much that this movie is doing and doing in such a hilariously straight faced classical way. Like it is not a grindhouse, you know, yeah. uh, pulls no punches. Like if you don't like it, then fuck you, you know, kind of attitude about the, it is trying to sell this, you know, mm-hmm. to everybody. And, and I love it for that. And somehow I still don't quite reach out and grab it. There's something about it that is slightly afar from me. Um, Cause for all of that, like I'm just surprised I don't like it as much as I do. Mm-hmm. So I give it three and a half out of five because I feel like the fifties and the nostalgia, there's something about the mixture of the subplots and the main plot that, you know, focuses too much on the sugar because it thinks that the medicine won't go down without it. And for that reason alone, I guess I wish, I wouldn't even say I wish, but the reason why I might prefer something like Crimson Peak is that even if that movie is probably more slight than this movie, it is at least slightly more uncompromising in its uh, macabre sense of the world and its uh, personal relationships. So, um but that's not, not to say that there's something against this movie because technically um, – I'll say one other thing, which is that if he had not already made Pan's Labyrinth, I probably would have liked this more because this is very much similar to that. Mm-hmm. Not in the plot but in the sense that he wanted to create adult an adult fairy tale, mm-hmm. which I'm not going to sp- – Boil Pan Labyrinth if you haven't seen it because everybody should go see that movie. Um, but I am surprised by certain plot beats at very important moments and how they're the exact same. Um, so I feel like that's where this movie falters a little bit in that he's kind of repeating things that he's already done that doesn't have enough mileage to be repeated. Mm. So I, I really enjoyed it. I give it three and a half out of five. There's so much here that's up my alley. Um, but I really need to see it a couple more times before I can weigh in on where it falls, so to speak. Good stuff. That makes sense. Anyone out there who has any thoughts on this or really any other Guillermo del Toro film? Because um, I think there are actually quite a few similarities across his entire filmography. Also, I just want to say that I also think that the um, – I didn't really talk about it at all, but since you guys mentioned, I will join the chorus and say that I think that the creature effects of Doug Jones mm-hmm. uh, and the makeup and the costume was 
amazing and just right up there with Dan Stevens in Beauty and the Beast. Like, you see, it's just it really oh. went above and beyond. See, that's the that's the thing though is when you see the set photos that of Doug Jones. Picture, I'm sorry, but oh, if anybody Dan hasn't Stevens. seen the Beauty and the Beast yeah. picture of Dan Stevens acting alongside. Emma Watson, particularly the ballroom scene, is just fucking amazing. You got to feel for Emma Watson there because you got to act along. <laughs> She's this trying. Fucking, yeah, and then you got this fucking guy. Oh, um, I will say, though, in regards to this film and the and specifically the coloring and yeah. uh, the way the light goes off of uh, the amphibian man's creature yeah. and the amphibian man's character, um, when you look at like set photos, like that's actually what... Yeah. He looked like on set. I mean, not yeah. the eyes and everything. No, but it's, but that's pretty yeah. much what the like. I would have wanted yeah. to fuck it if I was on set. <laughs> Where and um, I think Planet of the or um, sorry, War of Planet of the Apes should win Best Visual Effects this year for sure because the incredible CGI in that film. But that's Andy Circus wearing dots. Still, oh yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, yeah. so for much sure. much different. Just like Dan Stevens. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Um, There's something about the stupid blow-up suit about it. Like, they're making him look bigger, which is like, do they need to do that? Can't they just do that in the CGI post-production? Apparently like, not. I guess that. Never. It's just Fucking hilarious. Like, it's not like they put hair on Andy Circus. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. We hit on and on the work behind the episode. Caesar really does look like Andy Circus, and it's actually kind of creepy. It, yeah. it is, and it's, and it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So, any other thoughts out there about uh, Shape of Water or Keep any other Del Toro film? Always feel free to send them on to us at filmtankshow oh. at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at filmtankshow. So, Paul Thomas Anderson making his triumphant return to uh, our podcast as we are mm. going to talk about... And to our hearts. Yeah. We are going... No. Did we do an episode? Nope. No. On Inherent Vice, nope. we just talked about it on other episodes. I think so, yeah. Okay. But we have done other... I don't Paul think we Tom- had started the podcast at that point. Okay, it was right after I mean, it was that. like at that moment, yeah, so to speak. that's probably yeah. why it flows yeah. together. I know we referenced it multiple times yeah. in a couple episodes. Well, there was the episode when we did Chinatown. And we continuously Remember? talked about Inherent Vice. I did, because you made you the whole opening of every time I mentioned Inherent Vice on the Chinatown episode, mm-hmm. you son of a bitch. Well, it was every time, and it was a very long opening. <laughs> well, so. you know what? <laughs> I stand by what I said. But this is the third PTA film that we are going to be talking about, yeah. um, and it's gotten, for the most part, rave reviews. Yeah. Um, some people are, like, up Stupid. and down on it. Okay. Uh, but it's Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis uh, back together again. It's supposedly Daniel Day-Lewis's last acting performance. Uh, and he's playing a character named Reynolds Woodcock. So there you go. It's the Mr. Woodcock prequel we never knew we needed. <laughs> the Mr. Woodcock prequel. Yeah, Billy yep. Bob. Uh, yes, sir. Um, and, and, you know, everybody's... Sean William Scott, too, yeah. I think? Yeah, okay. Go no, on. was it him or was it... I was going to say John Heater. Ooh, I don't think so. I think I'll uh, look it up. I feel like maybe he was in there. Okay. But while you look that up, mm-hmm. a lot of people are feigning, I would say, skepticism that this is Daniel Day Lewis's last role. Like, because, you know, he's saying he's retiring. Mm-hmm. And I don't the... see John Heater, but it definitely okay. was Sean yep. Scott. Never mind. Yep. I wonder what I'm thinking of. But anyway, um, there is. Um, Craig well, Gillespie, though. Yeah. That? I, I was going to bring that up when Lars we were talking about Girl? I, Tanya. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, the skepticism that's surrounding Daniel Day Lewis's f- retirement. Here's what I got to say about that, which I know it's like there's always skepticism about anybody in Hollywood that says they're going to retire because then they never do. When someone like Soderbergh says it, yeah, obviously you don't take it seriously because he's never, ever stayed still. Well, he said he was retiring and he already had a TV show lined right. up. I mean, yeah. it's kind so of, there was already yeah. evidence to the contrary. Or even Tarantino, who hasn't done it yet, but said he's going to, he keeps pushing that date, which means when that date does come, he probably is going to break that rule or whatever. But here's the thing. Daniel Day-Lewis is the most method actor we know which makes me think he will retire just because he's not going to go back on his word because he wants to be as believable as possible it's already like maybe out of spite but that he's fair point. he's yeah. not gonna do it because even if he's he'll be like well no i retired well and not that he's been basically retired but this is only his third acting role in the last 11 years i mean yeah so... he, he's already selective here he's just saying i don't not gonna be doing no selecting. Yeah, well, and hey, I Come mean, to me or else I won't. And I guess, um, although I feel like he won't win, uh, or he will win the Oscar for it. Not and, and really? we saw I do. Um, Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I do. I feel like Oscars hate PTA. They'll nominate yeah. him, but you know, whatever is associated with his movie. Daniel Just... Day-Lewis already won one with him. So True, yeah. but I feel like that was bef- not before they knew PTA, but I feel like that's a movie that tricks people into <laughs> liking PTA. <laughs> well, because it's very straightforward. It's a very showy that performance. Was, that was, uh, actually, that was the favorite early on to win Best Picture that year. Right, and it didn't even win that, wow. which is totally fine, but most people were pretty much saying that they preferred that to No Country Old Men. Which I definitely do. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. But uh, it's... I, I know that um, Gary Oldman's catching a lot of steam, um, but I I don't think so. No. I, I haven't seen Darkest Hour, but that seems yeah. like just, yeah. look, I put on a fat suit. I should win. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, come on, Gary. I do that every day. It's called my skin. <laughs> so we'll be talking about <laughs> Phantom Thread uh, and also you Paul don't Thomas. don't see me bragging about it. <laughs> also Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis. And also, too, uh, unfortunately, kind of a, a lost person here, but Leslie Manville, uh, the female lead in this, is unfortunately, in this time where females are trying to be built up, has been completely forgotten. Uh, Leslie Manville and Vicky Creeps, the, yeah. the newcomer in this movie, are, from what I hear from the reviews, so I, I might have a different opinion, but just the general consensus is that they are knocking this movie out of the park alongside Daniel Day-Lewis, which might mean that they're doing even better work if they're that good, and yet they're not being recognized which is whatsoever. Which because you have Paul Thomas Anderson, who for the most part is a heavy-hitting director, yeah. and Daniel Day-Lewis, who's one of the greatest actors of all time, at least is thought of by a lot of people, and he claims he's retiring, uh, and this is supposed to be... Right, it kind of overshadows. It, it completely is, uh, and it's uh, interesting just because of the timing of it. But mm. we'll be talking about that and more about sure will. Thread coming up on our next episode. Thank you very much, Sam, for, for coming out, as Thank always. Uh, we loved having you and yeah. look forward to having you again, maybe next month. That would be, hey, whatever film hey. I'm, I'm up for discussing. I'm, there's Come a back few... for an episode on The Commuter, all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't joke about that. I was going to say. So do you, we talked a little bit, um, myself and Nick did, uh, 
last week or a couple couple weeks ago about two weeks ago, what we're yeah. looking forward to in 2018. Do you have anything that you're looking forward to that you know is coming out here in the next year or even the next couple months? I am, actually. Oh. Um, so Other than Isle of Dogs? <laughs> other than that one. Mm-hmm. Um, um, ironically, I saw the trailers for them at uh, when I went to go see The Shape of Water. Mm-hmm. Um, a Quiet Place. Um, that's a John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. Yep, yep. The horror movie. Um, yeah, that one looks very good I'm because I'm interested to see how the film works with the the sound of silence. Um, because oftentimes that's something in films that they don't like to have a lot of, unless it's a very intense moment. And even then, they usually have score behind it that right. escalates with the scene. Modern yet, horror films don't work without. Yeah. ridiculously loud noises. I agree. And so I'm interested to see how this piece is going to follow that. Um, and I, I'm i also interested to know why they have to be silenced. For, so for what purpose? Is it creatures? Is it humans? Is it something extraterrestrial? Whatever. Um, so that one I'm really interested in seeing. Um, and then um, the other one is, obviously, I know we mentioned Isle of Dogs. Um but the Winchester uh, Mystery oh, House, yeah, um, with Helen Mirren, yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah, the from the brothers that did the latest Saw movie, right? Not no. positive. I don't think so. Okay, I'm thinking of something else. Um, but it's, okay. it's it's fuck it's, me, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's um, who's the dude in that movie? Jason Clark. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's by the brothers who made the Jigsaw movie. Because that's why it was attached. You are, you are correct. Yes. Because uh-huh. I remember thinking, going to see the Jigsaw movie, like, oh, wow, they're really using Jigsaw to advertise the movie they actually want. Because it was attached to that movie, and I hadn't seen it on any other uh, movie. Anyway. I'll continue. never date you again. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that one, I'm not super like pumped to see, um, but I'm interested to see how it's done. I'm intrigued. Um. One of the reasons that I'm kind of wary about it is I'm a little nervous that it's just going to be a bunch of jump scares. Yeah. Um, and that there's not going to be really any sort of flesh to it. Um, and that poor Helen Mirian is put into like a Saw movie, essentially. Yeah. Um, the more Wait, I... what's wrong with that? No, no. <laughs> the, the more I see the trailer, the more I'm intrigued, but also apprehensive. Because... I'm very into the premise. Yeah. Yes. That's the thing. It feels I like. Agree. Yeah. It feels like at the end of the trailer, it's a run of the mill um, yeah. exorcism type film, yeah. which would be no good for anybody. And, but. you know, if that's relegated to the last 20 minutes, fine. If the build up to that is good, because horror movies, knowing the ending is actually really hard for a lot of horror movies, is because you're usually building up suspense of what the fuck is going on. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having to actually confront that is really kind of defeating in a horror movie, which is why some of the best horror movies of recent years have been a lot more ambiguous in nature. If uh, Helen Mirren... Which can also be tone deaf if yeah, done wrong. Yeah, but, but could could be great. Could not. Right. If Helen Mirren gets a letter that says they shot money in this, <gasps> oh man. They shot money. <laughs> Don't breathe. Even oh, though we had man. a huge discussion about how I felt like it wasn't actually a horror film, which is left for another day. 
um, and can be no. left on that episode. I know. <laughs> we had disagreements. It's a horror movie. That's fine. Um, that is quite the entertaining film if you're ever looking for a horror-ish film. And what is this one called? Uh, it's called Don't, Don't Breathe. Breathe. In fact, okay. I was going to bring it up when you said A Quiet Place because it's not the exact same in t- uh, intensity as far as sound versus silence. But the whole idea is that it's about a group of kids who are robbing a blind man and oh. in the middle of the night, and he wakes up. So it's about them trying not to make noise as they escape his clutches because he turns out to be kind of evil and crazy. Well, and there. You know what? I think yeah. I remember I've, seeing a. The trailer, trailer for was kind of everywhere, and I was yeah. like, and it phased I don't out. Know how I but feel the movie was actually, this? at the very least, it's worth a watch. I, no, think I enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I, I loved it. Love it. Yeah. Um, and it also has a very. Uh, it turns a part of the story on itself yeah. uh, towards yeah. the end of the film, which it is, is one of the grossest wonderful. things I've ever seen. The turkey, grossest tur- turkey baster, yes, yeah, and it's great. Yeah, mm. oh yeah. So uh, it, you know I, what? If you ever come back and you can block out time, if I ever come, back. well, not if you ever. come Whoa, back. hold on now. <laughs> when we do an episode of Winchester, next whoops! <laughs> I accidentally said something I shouldn't have. No. But when you come back, if yes. you can block out time for a movie yeah. after, let us know, and I'll bring Don't Breathe, and we'll watch that one night. That'd be awesome. I'd be down to watch yeah. it again. Yeah, the... the I know the audience really wants to hear this. Eh, well, oh, yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> um, they're not really listening anyway, that's so true. who cares? Um, Hi, Tucson. <laughs> <laughs> the film, uh, like a lot of other really well-done films, really has a lot of setup. Uh, and then delivers a lot towards yeah. the end of the film, which okay. is which is great. And there are a lot of very solid moments uh, yeah. in the last thirty minutes or so. so. Did we do yeah. an episode on it? We did. We did. Yeah, because I remember. Yeah, we did. Because I remember basically spouting my love for it and how the introduction to that house, because that's pretty much where the movie takes place for the most part. There's uh, a great moment too where one of the characters gets thrown through a window, yeah. <laughs> which we oh, talked okay. about on the episode, which was very out of left field, which is. I guess I may have ruined that, but you still won't see it coming. When no, you see it, the movie, it's, so. it's good. And once you do, you, it'll because the movie you tipped his hand. But the introduction to the house is amazing because it's one of the few times in modern cinema today, modern Hollywood cinema, where a tracking shot was actually used to good effect because literally camera just goes into every room for you know for the two minute span it has to go in so that way for the rest of the movie you understand the geography of this house and where and where where and where not people can basically hide it's really clever so anyway that actually sounds really interesting how that's set up mark it down next time you're here Mm -hmm. if you're ever invited back (laughs) if apparently according to nick so yeah it's fine i know i'm not liked i'll go back home it's fine oh good you're making this a lot less awkward for me (laughs) (laughs) so thank you again to sam for the last time (laughs) even if nick doesn't want me back yeah well we don't care about him (laughs) as long as we're all on the same page Thank you again to Sam uh, and from Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diekman. Thank you very much for catching up with us here at Film Tank. We'll catch up with you next time. They shot money. <laughs> what a great line. 